This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 8th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. This weekend, the Cato Institute and the larger movement for educational freedom lost one of its most powerful champions in Andrew Coulson, the longtime director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. Coulson drove the discussion about school choice into the big picture, long-term thinking. His colleague of many years here at Cato, Neil McCluskey, discusses Andrew's contributions. Before Andrew came to work at the Cato Institute and began his work in education, what was he doing? Andrew has a very sort of interesting path to education reform and school choice. He was actually a uh, computer engineer. He worked for Microsoft in the uh, 1990s. Um, And he essentially uh, finished his work at Microsoft. And he was basically just reading about uh, education issues, saw things in the newspaper that that he thought, this doesn't make any sense. Why do we run an education system that's basically a government monopoly? And that just sort of inspired him to undertake several years of research into how had education been delivered over the centuries? How do we deliver it now? Why does it make a lot more sense to do what he discovered was being done throughout most of history, which was uh, free people were were educating other free people through voluntary association, often getting paid for it, sometimes making a profit off it, and it worked pretty well. And he wanted to really tell that story, not because he'd uh, been a teacher or principal or something like that, but because he saw a big problem. And I guess kind of the engineer in him kicked in and said, well, how do we fix this problem? So that led him then to write Market Education. Right. He spent years researching all sorts of education history, education, uh, empirical um, data, empirical research. And it ended up becoming market education, the untold history, which takes you basically from Rome all the way to the modern day and looks at all sorts of aspects of it, not just, you know, the, the importance of profit, the existence of profit for a lot of time, but also really important things like how having a government system of school leads to social conflicts and divisions and things like that. And he kind of laid it all out in this sort of sweeping history that, that did exactly what the title says it did, which was revealed the the neglected and almost never discussed free market history of education. And that itself provided a lot of uh, – a lot of people point to that book as being uh, particularly – uh, striking in its presentation and encouraged a lot of people to say that, you know, it's worked then, it can work now. Yeah, interestingly, even a lot of the, the sort of school choice people who do a lot of the empirical work, so, you know, they look at a school choice program and say, well, can we demonstrate that we're getting better academic outcomes through choice programs? And even maybe people like Milton Friedman, who talked a lot about the economics of it, but we, we've heard actually from people who do a lot of this empirical research said, even though they'd already supported school choice at that time, looking at it from a historical perspective, seeing what actually happened, really kind of reinvigorated them and gave them a whole new um, vantage point of looking at school choice and seeing that it's not just something that you demonstrate through empirical analysis, controlling for lots of different variables other than school choice, but also that history has a whole lot to tell us about how education was provided and how it should be provided now. It's, I think, notable that he wrote that book uh, on his own. And before he even came to the Cato Institute. Right. He was unaffiliated when he wrote it. He was really just somebody who had who had been very successful uh, working on computers, doing engineering, coding. And he saw this problem. He said, 
Well, I'm going to tackle it. And so on his own, he wrote this book. No, he didn't. He talked to people who were involved in education reform because you know, he's bouncing ideas off other people. It wasn't just he had this, these things he read and he was going to go with it. He was working already with other people, but he had no group affiliation. And he published uh, Market Education, The Unknown History in 1999. And that really brought him to a lot of people's attention. He eventually uh, ended up affiliated with the Mackinac Center. And then after he was there for a while, he, he was here at Cato. Um, but it's really sort of an extraordinary part of his, his story that he wasn't writing that book because someone was paying him to do it or because it was his job. He was doing it because he thought it was a story that needed to be told. So within the school choice movement, if this book brought a lot of attention to, to his work and identified some things that people had uh, – history had sort of forgotten – uh, what was his role within the movement for school choice? So after the book was published, and, and particularly when he started to work at Cato, a lot of what he did was focused on saying, you know, it's great if you can get a voucher program for 2,000 kids, 3,000 kids in the inner city who need access to better schools. But that is not the transformative reform that we really need. That's not getting us real free markets where everybody essentially has the money for their education attached for them. Educators have freedom to set up schools the way they want. They have to compete for students. So they have to innovate. They can specialize. They could even make a profit because we know that making profits what incentivizes people to get into a market. You see where the people – the schools they're providing have heavy demand because they're working and people say, well, I'm going to replicate that because I want to make profits too. And so we talked about all those things that you really need for a free market to have everybody essentially having full educational freedom. And that's what leads to a system that's transformative, that innovates, that's vibrant, unlike the sort of, you know, moribund kind of kind of flat, um, uh, kind of dead education system that we have now. And a lot of that was actually making that case to people within the school choice community. Understandably, you've got a lot of people who want school choice. There's some people who want it specifically and sometimes only for low-income people because they are the ones who are you know, most poorly served. There are people who say, well, we want charter schools. They should still be public schools because we want public control, but we do want options. And what Andrew was saying was, if you want what's best for everyone, if you really want to make the best system, you've got to go to a free market. So lots of times we're really talking to other people involved in school choice, but ultimately making this argument for the whole public. Also within the school choice movement, he was perhaps the most vocal advocate for uh, tax credits, which is not a purely free market, but something that is much closer to it than charter schools or vouchers. Right. So it, it's absolutely true that you know, think tanks, we're thinking of the big picture and what the ultimate goal is. But if you, you do have to work through a political process. And so you're sort of making incremental progress as best you can. And vouchers are certainly better than you're being assigned to a public school based solely on your address. This is saying let's take that tax money, attach it to a student, let them take to the, to the school that they want. Uh, the problem is that money goes to the taken from taxpayer goes to the state, and the state gives it to somebody. That leads to a lot of impetus for regulation because taxpayers say, "I don't want my money going to a school that doesn't teach math well, or that teaches religion that I don't like, or any other number of things." 
We also saw that the term voucher politically was easily demonized because, you know, teachers unions and other groups who don't really like people being able to take the money elsewhere saying, oh, well, you know, this voucher is just really a way to destroy the education, the public schooling system, or to take money away from schools. And it's easy to see that connection. You know, the state's taking money and instead of sending it to public schools, they're sending it to a parent. And so what Andrew argued for, and he was really one of the first voices to really uh, uh, sort of loudly and seriously advocate for this, was scholarship tax credits, where an individual or a corporation donates to a group that gives out scholarships. That way, the money never goes to the state. The state isn't taking your money and redirecting it. You choose whether to donate. And even better than that are scholarship tax credit programs where you can choose among a whole bunch of different scholarship granting organizations. It could be, uh, could be Catholic schools. It could be Montessori schools. It could be art schools. Any number of possible options. And so this increased the amount of freedom involved, and it greatly decreased the coercion. And if you decrease the coercion and the connections to government, you decrease regulation, and you ultimately allow more people to have more freedom. And that's what we've seen is scholarship tax credits, the number of kids enrolled in private schools through them has gone up much faster than we've seen with vouchers. So vouchers are certainly good. You know, when we have the tax credit voucher debate, it's a debate among friends. But the tax credits seem to work even better. To the extent that he was one of the first voices very loudly talking about tax credits as an argument, uh, part of his legacy then is all of the states that have tax credit programs. And as uh, your colleague Jason Bedrick likes to point out, those have uh, withstood a great deal of uh, constitutional scrutiny. Yeah, that's one of their great benefits. So a lot of states have something called Blaine Amendments. Sometimes they're called compelled support amendments, but they're basically the same thing, which they're interpreted often more strictly than the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So in Zelman v. Simmons-Harris, uh, a Supreme Court case in the early 2000s, they said, look, vouchers are fine under the federal Constitution. As long as the money goes to parents and they freely choose among schools, it doesn't matter if they pick religious schools. That's not a violation of the Constitution. Many states have these Blaine or compelled support amendments, and they've been interpreted often much more strictly, saying even if it's indirect, even if it's money goes to parents and then they send them that money to a religious school, that is state support of religion, and we can't allow that. What the tax credits have, have what they do, and what I think enabled them to, to hold up to a lot of uh, legal attacks, is that that money never goes to the state. You freely choose even just to donate. And again, depending on how you, how you structure the law, you can choose which scholarship granting organizations to donate. And that seems, at least up till now, to have inoculated them from uh, successful Blaine Amendment challenges. And in uh, the documentary that we produced here at Cato last year on scholarship tax credits in New Hampshire essentially tells exactly that story. Uh, these were scholarship tax credits that were referred to frequently as vouchers mm -hmm. uh, in an attempt to demonize them. It went to the state's highest court and uh, the program was ultimately upheld. And that's probably due in, in no small part to Andrew's work. Absolutely. I think, you know, if you, if you want to talk about the two big legacies, uh, sort of one is big picture, one is, is, is kind of practical. The big picture is market education really made the case for why we need a free market education, not just school choice for some people that's heavily regulated, but real 
educational choice, educational options, educational freedom for parents, for students, for teachers. I mean, we always need to remember this is also about educators not being forced to do whatever the No Child Left Behind Act tells them to do or state regulations, but let them teach as they think will work. And then the accountability is, can they attract students and do they satisfy those students and their parents? Making that big educational freedom argument is, is probably Andrew's number one legacy. But number two is, here is a very practical way to get there. And that's scholarship tax credits. Cutting a lot of those government connections, which means cutting those strings and allowing school choice to mean a lot more freedom than it, than it often does if you talk about charter schools especially, but also vouchers. Neil McCluskey is director of the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom. Learn more about Cato's work on educational freedom at our website, cato.org.